All right, welcome back to Nerd is the New Cool. I'm Justin, and with me, as always, is John. How's it going, buddy? What's up, everybody? Today, we have a special guest with us, Mr. John Watka. Welcome. How's it going? John is our... Go ahead. No, I was going to say John squared, since there's so many Johns that you know, but there's a lot of Johns. I think it's a fair assumption to say, if you're friends with me or any of us, your name most likely starts with a J. Very true. Well... John's here. Well, the other new John is here to talk with us about Led Zeppelin. He's a resident expert. Actually, both of them are. So I'm going to kind of almost take a back seat in this whole this whole shenanigans because uh, they know way more than I do. Can we agree with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not to the level of like other people like on the internet that know. Yeah, that's way too. Like, I am a huge fan, and I know probably enough to be dangerous and it can go in depth on a few topics, but there are some people out there just on a whole other level. That's just, if I knew as much as they knew about Zeppelin on anything, I would be like a millionaire or something like that. I don't know. Well, but that's why we're here. We're here today to educate the masses about Led Zeppelin. So at the end of this the, podcast, if you don't feel like you're an expert in Led Zeppelin, you weren't we, paying attention. We, we failed at our jobs. We failed. We failed. So before we get into hopefully not failing, we'll talk a little bit about briefly what we all just nerded out on. So Lambert, what have you been nerding out on? So uh, the wife and I have been going through the wire, and uh, this is a, this is actually a show that I you know I mentioned on the last episode. So if you're an avid listener, I'm going to repeat myself a lot. And uh, so the wire is a show that was on HBO. And it revolves around the Baltimore drug scene as seen through the eyes of both the drug dealers as well as law enforcement. It debuted in June 2002 on HBO. It ran for five seasons, had 60 episodes, and the finale was March 9, 2008. It was created by David Simon and Ed Burns, not the actor Ed Burns, the author and former detective Ed Burns. And it was primarily written by the duo as well david simon having 60 episodes and ed burns having 42 it stars a lot of people i'm not going to get into all of them but i will hit some of the highlights uh, dominic west is uh detectives detective james jimmy mcnulty you'll probably remember him from chicago 300 and the forgotten wendell pierce is bunk moreland He was in Selma. He's also in Chicago PD and Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, which is a good show. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Lance Reddick as Lieutenant Cedric Daniels, who was in the John Wick series and Bosch. John Doman as he was the deputy commander for ops, William A. Rawls, and he ends up getting promoted throughout the show. Uh, Mercury Rising, Mystic River and Gotham. And then... Sonia Sohn is one of my favorite characters as Kima Greggs, Detective Shakima Greggs. She was in Shaft and Shy. It's got a lot of other people in it. Um, it's a good show. We're into season three right now. She had never seen it. I'm rewatching it. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's very entertaining and you know, not, it's got funny parts, but it's mostly a drama. So if you're into kind of a crime drama show, check it out. I think that we've talked about this show like three of the last four episodes. So we probably we, have. We clearly like The Wire. Walk, have you seen The Wire? No, I have not. Man, 
that's a failure on, on your part. I, I haven't even seen Sopranos yet. I I just got overwhelmed in the early two thousand wow. TV. I think we may have to we may have to stop the podcast and kick Waka <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. There's so much. There's there there's a lot. There's too much TV out there, so you can't get to everything. But The Wire, check it out. Yeah, so I've I kind of went a different direction with this. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of my favorite podcasts, obviously besides this one, is it's called Disgraceland, and it's it's a pretty amazing podcast, especially if you're into well, if you're into music at all, it's fantastic. It's it's basically a a, a guy named Jake Brennan, who's the writer, host, and producer, and he he's also the musician. He writes little theme songs and scores, but he basically talks about. The tagline for the podcast is musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. 30-ish minute episodes that trace the most insane criminal stories surrounding our most interesting and infamous pop stars. So he just basically talks about, does a bunch of research and tells these stories of, based on the research he's, he's collected of musicians doing freaking crazy stuff. Um, so it came out on February 13, 2018. Within two days, it reached number seven on the overall top podcast chart on Apple Podcasts. And it's That's got over, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's been downloaded millions of times in over 150 countries. Now the episode that I listened to recently had to do with, of course, Led Zeppelin. And the title of the episode was Led Zeppelin, colon, dark power, cocaine, backstage brawls, and heavy metal magic. So I listened, I listened to this episode as well. I have did you listened to it. Good. I have. Yeah. It was some nice research. And so I'm not going to talk about what happens in the episode right now. I'll save that for a later part of the uh, podcast, but was it magic with a C or magic with a K? It was magic with a CK. Oh, it was a CK. Okay. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't, we touch on some of the stuff that he actually discussed in his podcast, but not all of it. Yeah. I don't know why it's a CK and maybe, maybe I mistyped that or maybe he did, but it's definitely the dark magics. Yes. I mean, that, that's the emphasis on evil magic. <laughs> yes. True. Evil magic. So more on that later, but disgrace land. If you like, if you're into music and if you're listening to this podcast, you most likely are, or this particular episode, check it out. Waka, what about you? Uh, I, I've been Hulu binging. And so I went with uh, Rick and Morty, which I'm sure, you've either heard of you've heard of the fans or you maybe have never heard of it because it's uh it's one of those kind of cult shows that has a very strong following but at the same time if you don't watch adult swim at certain times you you might not have seen it uh it's uh about a teenager named morty and his mad scientist grandfather named rick who is also the smartest man in the universe and he invents a portal gun and it's basically a family style Simpsons show, but it's combined with the Futurama elements. And so it's the, the Morty and Rick going on madcap adventures and jumping through portals to different dimensions. And it's a, uh, it, it, it's a pretty crazy concept. Uh, it debuted, debuted in 2013 in December had first and second seasons came out really popular, but then there was a two year gap between the second and third season. And then another two years between the third and fourth which uh, fourth one just ended, it was split into to two parts. So it was a very, very disjointed uh, show. Just kind of interesting that it's, it almost, I think, drove the popularity beyond what it would have been by just the, the absence of it being there. Uh, it's written by a guy named Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon. And you guys probably have heard of Dan Harmon through Community, the uh, NBC comedy. 
Yeah, well, I watched the first couple seasons of that. It's pr- pretty solid. If you like Community, then you'll probably like Rick and Morty because the, the humor, the referential humor and topical humor and kind of deconstructing how comedy is written and how movies are written and the, the, the narrative structure of just writing in general kind of comes front and center in a lot of the episodes. So it's, uh, it's very, it can be very heady and it can be very juvenile depending on the episode and depending on the moment. But uh, it, was, it was based on this Justin Roiland guy, kind of like South Park, where he, he basically did a small hand-done cartoon that was a spoof on Back to the Future. So it's supposed to be Marty, but it's a misspelling of Marty and Doc. And it's essentially Doc. He, the, the guy voices both the characters, and he does so in the show, and he improvises most of the dialogue. And the episode, the, the cartoon, is basically Doc, like, we need, we need to go back in time and you need to fillet me. And it was, it's very crude, <laughs> very juvenile humor. And Dan Harmon saw it and was like, this is genius. Let's make a TV show out of it. So they got together with comedy, or not Comedy Central, Adult Swim, and then uh, Cartoon Network, and the, the rest is history, so to speak. Um, so uh, it stars, a small principal cast is Justin Roiland as Rick and Morty. Sarah Chalk from Scrubs is Beth, who is Morty's mom and Rick's daughter. Chris Parnell is Jerry, who is Morty's dad. And then Spencer Grammer, who is the daughter of Kelsey Grammer, plays Summer, who is Morty's mm-hmm. oldest sister. And then there's, it, since it's a cartoon, you don't always know whose voices are going to pop up, but it's kind of fun because there's a lot of, a lot of guest stars. So you've got Susan Sarandon, Danny Trejo, Christina Hendricks, Nathan Fillion, Jermaine Clement, Pat Oswalt, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert. Kurtwood Smith, David Cross, just these, even Werner Herzog, who's a fairly acclaimed actor and director, appears in these little bit parts as aliens or as God knows what, you know, I don't want to, don't want to spoil much, but it's, uh, if you like Futurama, if you like The Simpsons, then Rick and Morty's probably down your alley, although it, it gets far more extreme in the, the violence and the gross out humor and the overall production, I would say. That sounds fun. It is. It's a good time. But the, the fan base, you might have heard, because they, they get a little crazy. And there was a whole incident with McDonald's re-releasing the Mulan Szechuan sauce, which was just thrown into the end of an episode where Rick goes off on a how, how delicious this sauce was, and he can't find it anymore. And the fans petitioned, and McDonald's actually re-released the sauce for a week, and the fans bombarded McDonald's demanding Szechuan sauce and it sold out of all their locations in, in a matter of hours. And it, it almost kind of gives the, uh, the show a black eye to some degree because people just hear about the, the morons who really take it to another level. But uh, <laughs> it's the nature of fandom, I guess. I was going to say that's kind that's of, that's very true. That's where we are now. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All there right. Well, now let's get into it. We're Whenever talking about, we're talking about Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, in my opinion, the greatest band there ever was. Um, talking about, you know, we wanted to start the episode talking about kind of why we were doing it and really kind of discussing the personal connection that each of us have. For me, it's tough to describe. Um, Zeppelin's just one of those bands that I listened to for the first time when I was, I think I was 12, when my older brother gave me a tape, yes, a tape of Led Zeppelin 2, and I just listened to it over and over and over again. And 
for some reason, like Zeppelin, like it just like I just instantly found a connection with the music, and then I started listening to them more and started exploring different albums and every and then it just it kept going. And someone told me, a friend of mine told me a long time ago, like if you listen to like rock and roll music, kind of everybody goes through a Zeppelin phase where you're kind of really into it. And then some, and then eventually it just kind of fades away. And I always thought like, I, I got into my seventh phase and then it just <laughs> never went away. Like that was it. So I have a, I have a Zeppelin tattoo. I named my dog Zeppelin. Um, what, what yeah. is the tattoo of? It's of uh, the four symbols. Just wanted to clarify. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walker, why do you like it? Like I, them. I like them. Uh, I, I, it's kind of the same road as, as Lambert, where you're an impressionable youth. I, I distinctly remember the first two CDs I ever bought were Weird Al Yankovic's Alapalooza and the Star Wars soundtrack when I was 12. And then when I was 13, I bought Led Zeppelin 1. And it was like a transition between being a child and becoming an adult, so to speak. And uh, at the same time, coincidentally, I started playing the bass guitar when, you know, Ben Musk was playing guitar and everybody else was playing guitar. So I went with the bass because nobody else was playing the bass. And uh, I just became really interested in, in John Paul Jones as a bassist. And uh, I think he's a, a very seminal part of the group, as of course everybody is. But from a bass playing perspective, he's, you know, one of the the guys. And so <clears throat> that that was kind of the the tie-in besides just liking the music but then i got to uh I remember my my uncle bought me their a box set of all their albums when i was 15 so i had basically the run of everything i got to see page and plant in concert in 95 and then i saw them again in uh 98 99 when they did the walking into clarksdale tour so i uh it's just it was always just that group yeah, I don't have anything as deep and meaningful as you guys do. Um, <laughs> so I just, I appreciate their music. I've seen, well, I just went to a concert recently with, with Mr. Lambert to uh, the Celebration Day, which is, a, what's, what's the name of the band again? Well, it's, I guess they're called Celebration Day, but it, it's basically Celebration a, Day. The cover ba- it's, a, it's a cover band that does. You, you weren't joking with that statement. No, well, I mean, maybe I was. They, they, uh, they're known for Pink Floyd. But they also have taken on Led Zeppelin recently, and it was just an amazing uh, show here locally in St. Louis at the pageant. Yep, and, they do it every every year at the end of February. They do two shows. And I feel like this is one of those groups that I've become a fan by proxy just because of some of my close friends liking Led Zeppelin that I've just kind of become kind of a, a decent fan. But I learned a lot while doing some research on on these guys. So uh you know, I think I learned just as much, maybe more than people that are listening to this, this podcast today. So yeah, I don't, I don't like I said, that's all I got. There, there's a lot out there on them. There's a lot of biographies and everybody's tried to cash in on their experience with it. So you, you get up many perspectives. If you take the time to look for, you know, go, go, through, go to an old record store, you might come across a, a biography that's been out of print for a while that just mm-hmm. you, get those, you get those little nuggets that you you might not find elsewhere so well, absolutely also, well and also for me honestly like watching <clears throat> almost famous and knowing a lot about kind of the concept like of cameron crow and and a lot of that film is based on based on the shenanigans that led zeppelin got into when he was when he was with them reporting on them definitely definitely kind of adds to i guess 
you know, they just have, they just have this, this thing about them where, where they've, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. Like you don't know if a lot of these stories are in fact true because they're so absolutely ridiculous. It's a mythological. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah. You know, it's, it's gone beyond just story to legend. Yeah. Well, let's talk about them. Yeah, let's. So let's, let's talk about the members. Everybody probably already knows, but you know, lead singer, Robert Plant, he was on vocals, harmonica and percussion. Of course, there was Jimmy Page, uh, who was the lead guitar player, but would also play mandolin and various other instruments throughout, whatever he could get his hands on. Uh, John Paul Jones was the bass and the keyboard player. And then John Bonham, of course, was the percussionist. There were other people that joined the band. Tony Thompson played drums in 1985, as did Phil Collins. Paul Martinez played the bass in 1985. Jason Bonham took on the drums and percussion in 88, 95, and 2007. And Michael Lee also played the drums in 1995. We'll tell you a little bit later on why, why we had so many drummers in Led Zeppelin post-1985. And we also have to include Peter Grant, who was their manager. He was a very important part of their success. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the album. So the first album... Walker mentioned it, Led Zeppelin 1. Uh, some tidbits about that. Page and, Page and Peter Grant, the manager, actually paid for the album because uh, they didn't have a record deal yet, and it was entirely produced by Page, one reason, so he could have complete creative control over it. And there was only one single that was released from that album, uh, Good Times, Bad Times, and that was kind of a theme with Led Zeppelin. They didn't like releasing singles. They liked releasing albums in their entirety because it was a compilation of work. Uh, uh, following right up, which which is one of the think the amazing things about the band is they produce so much work in such little time. So also, I mean, their second album came out in '69, six or seven months after one did, uh, which was written entirely on tour, recorded entirely on the road. Um, it was their first album to reach number one in the U.S. and the U.K. and it knocked Abbey Road by the Beatles out of the number one spot, and then it held it for a, a very substantial amount of time. And the uh, a fun little tidbit is the uh, the front sleeve image is based on a group photo of Manfred von Richthofen, uh, yeah, Richthofen, which is uh, the Red Baron in his squadron, which was known as the Flying Circus. Which was, if you watch Monty Python, there's your Monty Python reference. That was like a that was like a triple reference. Yeah, Zeppelin, I'm good for that. Lots, Red Baron. Lots of, Nick, lots of name drops in that one. <laughs> well, well done. Well, the Red Baron was a World War One. Famous fighter pilot and right. yeah. German history obviously shows up in, in quite a bit of the imagery of the band from the early, early late sixties, early seventies. In 1970, they released Led Zeppelin three. They're getting real creative with these album titles. Plant <laughs> plant wrote the lyrics for every song, but Tangerine and acoustic songs were developed during the page plant retreat to the brawny or cottage. Is that how you pronounce that? I don't even know how you pronounce that. Brony R, yeah. Brony R. They were, yeah. They 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 had a retreat and they kind of they they created a lot of had a lot of creative juices flowing in that cottage with between the two of them. Uh, and you know, Paige writing all the songs that was kind of him expanding his role as as a songwriter, really, because at first a lot of this a lot of the stuff on one and two was really just driven by Paige because uh, he had. 
more experience. Uh, number four, uh, their, their fourth album, commonly known as Led Zeppelin IV, was technically untitled. Um, but it, they, this is where they come up with the concept of the, the Led Zeppelin symbols, and each symbol actually represents an individual member of the band. We'll go into detail, more detail about those later. It is Zeppelin's best-selling best album, and the sleeve was left void of identification because Zeppelin was getting criticism that they were coasting on their name. The solution was to eliminate all references to the band from the sleeve. And they sold like hotcakes. Um, followed that yes, up in, in, in 73 with Houses of the Holy, which is a uh, first album with all original content, which to people who don't understand that, a lot of their, their, their work from the first three were basically blues covers like a, the, mm -hmm. the Stones did. And they were very driven by blues rock and, and blues music from, uh, from the United States. And so they would rework blues songs into their own numbers, which, which they did at the page did with the Yardbirds as well before Zeppelin was even formed. So uh, it was the first album that they produced all their original tracks. Uh, the title track, House of the Holy, was recorded, but it was actually not released with the album House of the Holy. And a fun little tidbit, the, the cover design, which is the, the naked children playing on stone formations. I think it's Giant's Causeway. I'm not entirely sure. But it was designed by Storm Ferguson, who was a graphic designer. He worked with a company called Hypnosis in the 60s and 70s. And he was Pink Floyd's go-to guy for all the majority of their album work. And I think I also read that that was only two kids. <laughs> yes. It was a brother and sister, and one of them now they grew up, and I think the one of, they're both in entertainment, and the brother works for uh, not B, not BBC News, but he's in broadcasting and is actually a a public figure in England right now. So that's, that's crazy. <laughs> the next album was called Physical Graffiti in 1975. Originally, it was recorded as eight songs. Or they recorded eight songs to this album but they were so long they decided to make it a double album and included previously unreleased tracks, which I'm assuming is where they also released. Is that Houses of the Holy on that album? Yeah, they didn't. That was, I don't think they originally planned on releasing it, but then everything they recorded for this one was so long. They were like, ah, oh, let's just throw some more stuff in there because they had a lot of stuff that was built up that just never, they just had it on the shelf. Right. This is the first album release on their own label which was called Swan Song Records. Next album was Presence in 1976. <clears throat> and there was actually only one track credited to the entire band. The rest were all Page and Plant. Uh, there was no tour to support the release of the album because Plant was recovering from a bad car accident. Hmm. I was watching Pawn Stars the other day, Pawn Stars, and uh, they had somebody brought in if you look at the cover of Presence, it's a family sitting around the table and it has a black obelisk, which is mm -hmm. a reference to 2001. A guy brought in one of those. They had produced a certain number and he was trying to sell one of those obelisks from, uh, from that cover. I don't remember what it went for, but it was, it was fun to see. because It's That's a neat, cool. little, neat little work of art. But uh, <clears throat> they followed that album up with the song remains the same which wasn't technically a studio album it was uh, a live soundtrack to the film of the same name recorded over three nights at madison square garden in july of 73 which was what people consider the the peak of zeppelin at their most badass famousness so to speak and they actually overdubbed and did some recording 
and studios in England to fill out uh, parts that needed extra extra work. And surprisingly, the album was not well received by the band. Um, I don't think they were happy with, with some of the performances and how the layouts went, but the movie went on to gross them $10 million in the theaters. And it kind of helped fill in the gaps as, you know, they didn't do any tours for presents because of Plant's Broken Leg. But it was also interesting in that they were taking a basically a tax holiday. These English tax laws were so strict that they had to be out of the country and not earning income, something along those lines, for six months to a year or more. And so that's one of the reasons why there was a pause in the, in the mid-70s was because they were trying to uh, keep, keep some of their earnings. Hmm. In 1979, they released the album In Through the Outdoor. It's a fun title. Jones and Plant were the driving forces behind this album. Southbound Suarez and All of My Love are the only two original Led Zeppelin songs for which Page received no writing credits. The album was released with a brown paper covering. Six different sleeves were designed, so purchasers never knew which version they were getting. Inner black and white artwork had watercolor dots that, when hit with a wet brush, colored the image. It's a pretty, very clever I actually album. have this album with the brown cover. Megan found it at a, um, like a thrift store somewhere. Or like a, so she, she saw it and found, I was like, what is this? And I was like, oh my God. Did, are the dots painted in? Did you ever notice those before? I didn't notice those before. Now I'm going to have to go back and look. Because I didn't know about that. I, I've been taking graphic design classes. And one of my professor, we were talking about it. He's like, yeah, there were watercolor dots. You could color it in. And I had, this was six months, a year ago. I had no idea that they had done that. Because they, they were allowed, again, they had a, a really nice contract and were allowed to do all the things that they wanted to do for their albums. And uh, they just love to throw in those little gimmicks and it's uh it's something you don't see in even back then you didn't see much of stuff like that from no from bands but you should check out and see if your, your version has those i will have to look right after we get done with this uh the last mm-hmm. album was coda from 1982 and this was just a collection of unused tracks from various recording sessions uh, from the 60s and 70s, and it was really released to honor contractual obligations to Atlantic Records. They had to put something out. Huh. There are a lot of famous tracks. We talked about the albums. Now let's get into their tracks. And we didn't, of course, cover every single track because that would take a very long time. And I got to give a little bit of a shout out to the Rolling Stone magazine, which is kind of where we got a lot of the information for these these tracks. Kind of just a tidbit about each, you know, some of the most popular songs in order by year of release but but not necessarily by album let's just throw that out because it, right two albums came out in 1969 so it's a little mixed up yeah yep. let's not worry yeah let's not worry about the album it was on <laughs> just the year okay i just, just want, don't want to throw people off you nerds could probably actually <laughs> tell us right now what albums these each one of these songs were on but let's yes. just go ahead and not do that we'll just say this, two, is, this two, is by one. year <laughs> yeah uh so, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You is 1969, which was a, I don't, not quite a cover, but it was picked up from a, a Joan Baez, Baez record. Baez. Joan, Joan Baez. Baez. I need to Baez. look her up. Heartbreaker is another popular song, also came out in 1969. Page's solo was a heavy metal textbook full of pyrotechnics that, per legend, inspired a young Eddie Van Halen to reimagine the possible. 
which is pretty cool to think. I mean, Van Halen obviously is another you know major rock star, especially in the '80s. It has a constant riff, and it's it's supposed to sound or it does sound just like the ocean, which is a song, not not the actual ocean. Not the yeah, it doesn't sound like the actual ocean. Uh, also, yeah, yeah, 1969, yeah. Moby Dick. Uh, this is an all instrumental track uh, that features uh, Bonham's drum solo. And it was actually based around the bluesman Sleepy John Estes, the girl, girl I love, she got long black wavy hair, which is actually a track that Led Zeppelin has on the BBC sessions. If you have that album, that is on there. I do. And in concert, this would last a long time. Celebration Day, the band leaves the stage while John Pisoni, the drum, the drummer for Celebration Day, just goes off on a tangent and Led's, the actual Led Zeppelin members would frequent would always leave the stage and just leave Bonham up there to just play for as long as he could. And, and play he did, like 30, 45 minutes. He I'm would. Sorry. And I, I heard a rumor, and I tried to confirm it, but I couldn't find it, that, that for one concert, they left, but then they had like a camera crew follow them. So on like the Jumbotron, you could see that, and they actually left. So they got in their limo. They left the whole thing, went and got something to eat, came back, and then he was still playing the whole time. I think they might include part of that in the the song remains the same when they because they they cover that song. Perfect. Everybody walks off and they've got cameras documenting them. Just <laughs> like, we'll we'll leave him be. Uh, yep, we'll, we'll let him go. Also in 1969 was Days of Confuse, which is a, a psychedelic blues beast that became a, a centerpiece for stage performances. Um, the original songwriter was Jake Holmes, who re- recorded in 1967. Page reimagined it for. For Zeppelin and uh, the you know their, their concerts where they'd get in there and just they like jam out for an extended period of time um, this uh, there was another famous song for featuring Jimmy Page playing uh, a 12 string or the double neck guitar often with a, a violin bow and they like like John Bonham's Moby Dick they would just kind of go on and on and the band would let him do his thing and he would just uh, tear it up for 30 45 minutes the age of the jam sessions mm-hmm. Communica- communication breakdown was another song in 1969 and this was just has a really a really kind of a punk feel to it which is well before punk became a thing also in 69 ramble on uh the sir this is the song where plant first nails his mystic storyteller alter ego combines familiar folk blues concerns with hitting the road and looking for a woman. And there is some references to Lord of the Rings in this song and a few others as well. Yeah, they, on, a, on a personal note, I, I think that's one of the things I liked about them as a kid was that they, they were a, a hard rock band, but they had this literary side. They had a very intelligent side to a lot of their, their songwritings where they bring in references to, to books and pop culture and, and mythic tales that were, it was beyond just, you know, it wasn't like a Kiss song where you're, this is what we do on Saturday night out in the city. It was a, a, a story or an adventure set to, uh, to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Finally, the last song we're going to talk about from 1969 is titled Good Times, Bad Times. And this was the first song on their first album. And it really just kind of introduced them to kind of what kind of music they're going to be making. That's a, also one of my favorites. Um, going on, Immigrant Song with 1970. 
This is probably one of their most famous songs. Uh, no hard rock song has ever had a more ominous opening line, which is, we come from the land of ice and snow, inspired by the band's concert in Iceland in June 1970, during a time when the sun never fully sets. Plant started fantasizing about Vikings and wrote in basically the voice of a Norse, Norse chieftain as they were leading a sea invasion, expecting to die, which is, is as badass as it comes. Uh, it is also the best song in Thor Ragnarok and used to, to full effect with the North mythology. And it, it also brings up the point, too, that they were very protective of their songs and they didn't let a lot of their songs be used in movies for a really long time, which is why you don't see a lot of Zeppelin songs. And when you do see and hear it, people either paid a lot of money or the band really liked the concept and said, this is uh, sure, go ahead. This is good. Like School of Rock had the Zeppelin song. And they literally had the all the kids line up with Jack Black and film a please Led Zeppelin will you let us use this? I can't remember which which song they used for it. I can't remember either. I just saw that movie like a couple but months ago. They, they, you have to get Zeppelin's blessing to use their stuff, and and so when it does come along, it's a, always a very fun, poignant use of it. This was also in uh, immigrant song was also in I think Shrek two, either two or three. I can't remember which one, but it's in one of the Shrek movies. Um, next one is Tangerine, also in 1970. Shout out to Jordan. This is her favorite song. Uh, the band's greatest country excursion dates back to a song written by Paige and Keith Ralph called Knowing That I'm Losing You from the last Yardbird session in 1968. Paige resurrected it with new lyrics that Plant described as being about love in its most innocent stages. And Paige said, we're not stale and this proves it. <coughs> How can how can you already become stale? They're, this is the second year that they've been around. <laughs> this was their third album, right? Okay, <laughs> get a little ahead of yourself, critics. It's, but they, it's just such a different time period for music that that's going it, on. It is, and they and they turn and like Zeppelin, like one and two were like real, like hard blues rock, and three they they started experimenting and they kind of they turned a little bit and started going off on different tangents. There were still a couple of hard rock songs, but there's a lot of there's a lot of just different styles going on in this album, which is probably why it wasn't as well received as others. Anyways. Uh, yeah. I'll, in 1971, there's the battle of Evermore, which going along with tangerine is definitely not a quote unquote, uh, hard rock song. It's one of their more arresting displays of uh, their love of folk music. Uh, Sandy Denny of Fairport convention is featured for, for backup vocals with Paige on the mandolin. And it's another uh, evocation of the Lord of the Rings with allusions to wraiths and mountainside warfare. And then on tour, John Paul Jones was the backup singer instead of Sandy Denny, which is always a fun little, fun little addition to your duties is singing in a high pitch register. That man can do anything. <laughs> That's pretty funny. What are we on? Going to California? Going to California, 1971. This is considered kind of one of their prettiest songs, if that's a thing. Would you guys agree to that? Idyllic. That? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah, so it's 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 got a lot of acoustic uh, finger picking, is what it's called. Uh, Jones uses the mandolin, and Plant tries on some country twang, and it is rumored to be written about Joni Mitchell. Yeah, and in some live performances, they actually mention Joni. Like, Robert will be like, Joni? 
So yeah, that's uh, that's probably true. Uh, Misty Mountain Hop, also in 1971. The Zeppelin Canon is is full of mysteries, but none greater than this. How can a song about flower people and Tolkien be so funky? And I like that song. And this always make this song always reminds me of Almost Famous as well. That is on that one, yeah. Uh, 71 also gave us Rock and Roll, which is probably their most rock and roll song, I, I think. It imitates the, a few bars of Little Richard's 1957 Keep a Knockin'. Uh, the song was initially called It's Been a Long Time. And I know from a lot of what I was reading that it was a basically their staple concert opening song. To You, you come out, you throw on the lights, and you just throw down from the get-go. And uh, I think it's an appropriate choice for the for that duty. Yep. 1971 also, When the Levee Breaks. This was kind of like a a blues was definitely inspired by blues music had a lot of uh it was lyrics cribbed from the memphis mini about an epic flood and freaky drowned world production by page it also had a lot of echoes backwards harmonicas slow-mo playbacks bonzos (laughs) bonzo drums It, it, it was just pretty it was a lot of crazy stuff going on it was also most famously opening for the the beastie boys is licensed to ill like a sample of the song and it's just got a really good intro with the drums and a very simple, iconic drum beat. Yeah. Uh, off, Ze- off, uh, off Zeppelin 4, uh, 1971, a song that's near and dear to my heart, Black Dog. Um, so Jones originally had this idea for kind of a call and response. And then he, because he came up with a riff and they didn't really know what to do with it. And then they decided to turn it into that to where you have the band playing. And then Robert says something, and then the band comes back in, and then and then Robert says something else. So that was, was kind of his idea, and it's it's a great song. All of these are great songs, but I do like this one a lot. Uh, moving on to the, I, think, I guess their seminal masterpiece would be "Stairway to Heaven," which is their signature power ballad from Led Zeppelin Four. It starts off obviously very very slow and speeds up to. Uh, a crescendo, or as Paige put it, an adrenaline flow, and it was a, a milestone for the group. There's also a bit of controversy surrounding the song over the last few years where uh, the band, what was the band name? Uh, the, the song was named Taurus, and so there was a group in the early 60s, the late it's 60s that they were yep. touring with. Band, the band's name was Spirit. Sorry, I just had to pull it up. And they claimed that Jimmy took the opening solo picking from their song spirit and there was a major lawsuit that went through federal courts and i believe it finally was closed and that they ruled that it was not a uh, that they, they while similar there was no no intent to to steal from the copyright which left everything in uh in, in led zeppelin's hands because that would have been a pretty big uh pretty big overturn head pretty big settlement yes for that song it would have been a costly one we already mentioned the ocean, but now let's talk a little bit about it. This came out in 1973. It's dedicated to their sea of fans, and it's actually a chance to showcase for Bonham as a vocalist. He and Jones make a rare appearance, uh, serving as backing vocals for the outro. And the the intro, where you can kind of hear him saying, "We've done four already, but now we're steady." Yeah, he's not referring to albums; he's referring to takes. They had already done four takes of the 
of the song and they were on the fifth one. It's like, all right, now let's go. Um, Dancing Days in 1973, uh, after recording this at Mick Jagger's actually country home in Stargroves in England, the bandmates were so excited that they went out on the lawn and danced to it. The music was inspired by Page and Plant's trip to Bombay. And I can, I can see that. You can, kind of, you can feel it in the guitar riff. <clears throat> All right, moving on to uh, Dire Maker, which is 1973. It's, it's not officially the name of the song, even though that's what's printed on the album. I think Led Zeppelin, even in an interview, it was Page or Plant refers to it, that they called the song Jamaica, and it was an homage to, uh, to reggae music, which was a, a burgeoning musical scene in the early 70s. But it was, to American audiences, it was Dire Maker, even though it's, uh, it's their, their reggae addition to their uh, to lexicon. Hmm. No Quarter also came out in 1973. This is a very trippy song, and it's the first song in which they use synthesizers and electronic enhancements. Live versions could be up to 40 minutes long. Yeah. Again, so in, in the same spirit as like leave, letting Bottom go, they would just let Jones go on, yeah. on the keyboards, and he would just play forever. Uh, Over the Hills and Far Away, Justin, I know you like this song. That's uh, it's 19... the only song. It's the only song I can play on the guitar that they, <laughs> they uh, <laughs> of theirs. And that, you know, to go along with that, uh, this it's kind of a, a pop boogie. Was the was Zeppelin's first single that didn't make the top fifty, which is kind of I did not know that, and that's kind of odd because this is a pretty popular song. Uh, that's shocking to me that Over the Hills and Far Away did not make the top fifty. It's insane. <laughs> what a travesty yes <laughs> bold uh going on again houses of the holy that was brought up that was 1975 it was recorded for the album houses of the holy but because it sounded too much like dancing days it was shelved and then brought back for physical graffiti we've got cashmere which came out in 1975 and this is one of the few songs that used a lot of outside musicians not just the the core members. It's also famous for being sampled by Puff Daddy for Godzilla in 1998. For, Jimmy uh, Page. <laughs> and Jimmy Page is absolutely. He, he, was, he was in that he, music he's video. He's in the video. <laughs> yeah, what is like, the name of that song? Come With Come Me? Come With Me. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't he like playing in the rain? It's like yes. downpouring. I, it's some, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. And, and Godzilla stomping around behind him. Yes. Obviously. Epically one bad. Of the, one of the many terrible godzilla remakes uh the next song achilles last stand is a very long song uh, in mid-1975 plant was on vacation with his family in greece and while there he lost control of his car his wife was injured, and plant was left with a broken angle that hobbled him for nearly two years the song while being about mythology also referenced the trip he and his family were taking as well as the recovery process uh, during the recording of this song, which is features on Presence, Plant was confined to a wheelchair and at one point leapt up and collapsed on his bad leg. Yeah, I mean, to, they, the band didn't know at this time if they were going to be able to continue. That's uh, one of those little points of emphasis. It was such a bad injury that it was like two, almost two years he was confined to a wheelchair. And this is, this is a guy who's on stage dancing around, you know, for, for four or five years at a time. 
it's almost straight that uh, it was at this point, I think that the band was from 73 to 75. If you listen to the interviews, they were closest to breaking up through due to exhaustion and then drug problems and then this injury and the other kind of negative things that happened to the group. But uh, he still managed to, to, to play it through. And then we've got um, moving on to Royal Orleans, which is 1976, which is named after a hotel the band would frequent in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, the song is about someone who takes a transvestite to their hotel room and ends up lighting the place on fire. And there was speculation as to who in the band that was about. And uh, John Paul Jones kind of put everything to rest during an interview where he attributed the, the, the cross-dresser to uh, Richard Cole, who was their road manager and was, was friends with many in the community. But Jones does admit that while staying at the hotel, he went to smoke some joints with a, a woman and he fell asleep and accidentally lit the room on fire. And when he woke up, he was surrounded by smoke and firemen. So, <laughs> Just one of the, one of the many in- incidences like that, I would imagine. In 1979, All of My Love came out. This is one of only two Zeppelin songs not written or co-written by Page. It's Plant's tribute to his son, uh, Carrick? Carrick. Carrick, okay. Who died in 1977 at the age of five. According to a friend, Page actually hated this song, but because it was about Plant's kid, he couldn't really say anything. That's probably a good call. (laughs) You know he wanted uh, to, though. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure he wanted to. Yeah, of course he wanted to. Um, I was scrolling around. So the next song is Fool in the Rain. <clears throat> uh, from 1979. It's, Zeppelin isn't a nostalgia band, Page said defiantly when punk rockers were denouncing his group. You can sense their eclectic restlessness here. Jones and Plant heard a samba song while watching the 1970 World Cup, which influenced the Latin jam middle section, and Paige called it a springboard for what could have been. So like what they would have started having their music sound like had they continued on as a band, basically? Or just, yeah, or just a different, like another direction that they could have taken because they were, you know, they had... You know, they had Indian influences. They obviously had blues influences, but then folk influences. And this was just another kind of, you know, tool in the toolbox that they could have started, you know, pulling out and kind of changing directions again. Which, which is really a testament to all of them as musicians because they were, they, they, there's few to no groups. I, I would argue even the Beatles didn't take such a, a diverse approach to, uh, to, to world music and different genres and styles. And, and to be famous for being the loudest rock band in the world, but at the same time, just having so many different styles and variations of songs on, on their albums is uh, it's pretty fascinating because it really takes a lot of good musicians to, to pull that off and to do it well without sounding kind of cliched, but they, they managed to do it. And uh, that's our last song is The Rain Song, which was inspired by a conversation between George Harrison of the Beatles and John Bonham. Harrison made the comment to Bonham that they never do ballads. And I guess Paige took that as a challenge and uh, wrote the rain song to, uh, to put George Harrison in his place. And that, that one's out of order, but that one came out in 73. <sighs> yeah. I, I added that one because I like that little tidbit and the, and one song that I will mention, I don't have any facts on it or anything like that. I just would be remiss not to mention it is since I've been loving you off Led Zeppelin three, because that is my favorite Led Zeppelin song. 
So it's a good one. <laughs> we've talked about the albums. We've talked about some of the songs, not all of the songs. Let's talk about how they got there. You know, a little bit of a little bit of the history and how like the formation of the band. Uh, so we'll start with Jimmy Page. So Jimmy Page was born January 9th in 1944 in Heston, Middlesex, England, which is actually just a suburb of London. His first guitar was a Spanish guitar. He was mostly self-taught, but he was encouraged by his parents. And he was friends with a, another known guitarist, Jeff Beck, growing up. Uh, his first real gig as a professional musician was in the band Christian and the Crusaders. Uh, and at the same time, he was also in art school and he was learning how to paint, which I, I think a lot of his, you know, the, uh, the artisticness of the albums really comes through with, with, with Page that he, he really had an aesthetic view of the band and of the world. And then uh, shortly after Christian the Crusaders, he became a session guitarist, which to those of you who don't know, at the time, studios that produced music would have really good musicians on hand to fill out parts and to play, play for other bands who were recording albums. And they, if they needed a, a hired gun, so to speak, they would call up somebody like Jimmy Page to come in and play backup or to play guitar for an album. And uh, coincidentally, that's how John Paul Jones came to meet Jimmy Page, was that he, uh, he hired Jimmy to play on the English artist Donovan, his uh, song Hurdy Gurdy Man, and Donovan will come up a, a bit again under John Paul Jones. Right, so he was first hired as bassist for the Yardbirds. You've probably heard of that band before. Eventually moved to co-lead guitar with Beck, but Beck and Page had a falling out over who wrote a song called Bolero. Beck eventually quit the Yardbirds, a Yardbirds and the Yardbirds kind of kept touring, but at this point, Led Zeppelin kind of had a audience right and in the states and so i guess they decided to launch led zeppelin for the most part yep so i mean out of the ashes of the yardbirds kind of rose led zeppelin and we'll 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 touch on that a little bit more but bottom page found the other members he was really the the, the he, he couldn't like they're all founders but he was the one who was trying to put something back together and he needed to go out and he ended up going out and finding a whole other band. <clears throat> Not just a band, but a super group. Pretty much. Uh, John Paul Jones, born January 3rd, 1946 in Sidcup, Kent, England. His real name is John Baldwin. Uh, he picked up the John Paul Jones moniker um, during his, his own session musician years. And John Paul Jones, of course, was a famous naval commander of the American Revolution on the American side. Just to... Uh, to throw that out there yes he was so jones jones grew up in entertainment his parents were vaudeville performers his dad was a jazz musician and jones learned to read and write music as as well as play the organ he he like you Watka, picked up the bass at 14 and was a professional bassist by the age of 17 his reputation spread and he soon became also in the same vein as page he became known as a studio musician and a session musician who, who could also arrange. His big break came when he was asked to arrange the album Sunshine Superman by Donovan, which we mentioned before. <clears throat> he was aware of Page's talents and hired him for the song Hurdy Gurdy Man. Both John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page played on Sunshine Superman. 
And John Paul Jones also played bass and arranged the song Mellow Yellow. He also played bass on Cat Stevens' debut album and arranged the strings for She's a Rainbow by the Rolling Stones. He also played bass and conducted an album for Dusty Springfield. Dusty would later put in a good word with Atlantic Records for John Paul Jones before Led Zeppelin signed with them. So how he came to join the band, um, Jones played on the Yardbirds album Little Games and was, again, widely known as a, like the consummate professional who had many talents. He had worked with Paige several times, so they were familiar with each other. So when in the Yardbirds, Chris Dreja, who was an original member, was offered the bassist position and was going to be Paige's new group uh, after Beck quit the Yardbirds and the band was basically done but he declined and decided to take a career in photography. Um, most notable being the, the back photo of the group on the back of the Led Zeppelin one. And so after Dreja declined, Jones approached Jimmy Page and said, I'd like to be in, in your group. Uh, I think it would be fun. And Page thought it would be a perfect fit as again, he was, he, he knew of his talents. He knew what he could do and he knew what he could play. So we got to talk about Robert Plant now, right? He, the quote, I am a golden god, which if you've seen Almost Famous, that's, that's attributed to him. He was born August 20th. That's the part where he's sta- standing on the house, by the way, before he jumps in the pool or the, the bar, whatever you want to call it, the garage. If you haven't seen Almost Famous, go see it. Yeah. Continue. Pretty, right. <laughs> he was born August 20th, 1948 in West Bromwich, Staffordshire, England. Uh, he developed an interest in music after listening to Elvis Presley, which he impersonated as a child, and uh, blues musicians like Willie Dixon, Robert Johnson, and Bucco White. And then he left home at the age of 16 to be part of the Midlands blues scene and sang in bands like the Crawling King Snakes, uh, a, a group called Band of Joy, which had various iterations where he came to meet John Bonham, and then his own group called Hobbs Tweedle, which is a very... Very English name, if there ever was. I love, I, I, love, I was just saying, it's either a band name or it could be like the name of a town. Or <laughs> it could be a name of a pub. It's such a great name. So how did Plant come to be in Led Zeppelin? So when Paige was forming the band, he originally approached Terry Reed, a singer who was also managed by Peter Grant, who was a member of Peter Jay and the Jayhawkers before going solo. Reed wanted to make it solo. So he did not want to join a band. He wanted to stay on doing his own. Reed, a uh, new plant from playing in Band of Joy, suggested that they look at him for the spot. Yeah, and he was actually suggested to Page by two other sources. Alexis Corner, who was known for as a founding father of British blues and helped put together the Rolling Stones and Free. He kind of saw Plant play in 67 and basically said he's pretty darn good. Another person that suggested him to page was tony secunda manager of the bands the moody blues Procol harem and the move and again he'd also seen plant perform and was impressed yeah and so secunda actually took jimmy page to go see plant performing at obs tweedle um and enjoyed the show and he asked him to come spend a few days with him at the at the at the house together where they could work and kind of to, to split split ideas. I know one of the stories I came across was Robert, Jimmy was out and Robert went through his record collection and he picked out a bunch of what he thought were his favorite albums. And then Jimmy Page came back and noticed 
the albums that Robert picked out were all the albums that Paige were going to, was going to recommend that Robert listened to. And so they had this kind of, from the get-go, a, a, a spiritual connection, so to speak, on musical choices and, uh, and ideas. And then they allegedly arranged, babe, I'm going to leave you during this meeting. And uh, the rest is history, and Plant was uh, the new lead singer. Yeah, I actually read the same thing about the the kind of him going through the record collection and realizing, yeah, we're we're into a lot of the same stuff. And then there was also something that I read a while ago where when Paige first saw Plant, when he first saw him, at first he was he was he was hesitant because he he thought there must have been something wrong with him. <laughs> because there's a guy like he was he he was kind of making a known for himself around the Midlands and he was he was, you know, this, this black country kid who was just wailing the blues. And it's like, how come no one's discovered this kid yet? There must be something wrong with him. And then he met him and realized, okay, he's actually a normal person. So maybe this could work. Uh, the last member, uh, John Bonham, born May 31st, 1948 in Redditch, Worcestershire, <laughs> England. <Sorry. laughs> Wor- Worcestershire. Yeah, Worcestershire, Worcestershire. <laughs> I know how to pronounce some English cities, just not all of them. That's a, that's a tough one. That's okay. I should know that for because it's the same spelling as the sauce, but whatever. It, it, that's what the sauce is named after. You're correct. He's so he started playing. Well, he started playing drums. I'm using air quotes. Like he would play on like household items, pots, pans, coffee tins at the age of five. And he actually got his first drum, which was a snare drum, at ten, and his first kit at fifteen. His major influences include Gene Krupa, Ginger Baker, Buddy Rich, and Max Roach, and was mostly a self-taught drummer. His first semi-pro band was Terry Webb and the Spiders at age 16 in 1964. It was also at this time that he played on the recording of She's a Mod by the Senators. And then uh, in 1965, he joined the band A Way of Life, and in between stints with that uh, he came to play with Robert Plant in The Crawling King Snakes later that year, and then Robert asked him to join his iteration of Band of Joy. And so by 68, he had earned his reputation as one of the best drummers in the Redditch area, also one of the loudest. He consistently broke drum heads, and uh, as you like to say, he developed a, a style that he could get the, the most volume out of the drum with the, the least amount of movement. Um, and so, and he was known for hopping from band to band. I mean, the guy liked to to play, and he went where the where he, where the money was and where the fame was, and uh, his his uh, reputation led him to good things. Yes, it did. So, how did he join Led Zeppelin? So, while still a member of the band, Chris Dreja, who was the previous bassist of the Yardbirds, asked Paul Francis to be the new drummer. But he, but Francis was leaving on a short tour. And they agreed to have talks upon his return. Side note, by the time Francis got back from the tour, Dreja was out of the band and Bonham was in. So that was kind of the end of that story. This, all of these, these four and all the bands they're in, I'm sure this is the same for all these artists back then. It's just, it's such, it's a very confusing web that's being woven. <laughs> I mean, how many bands sure. they were all in and jumping back and forth and dropping members and different titles. It's, it's that, if you get into the whole music of the 60s and 70s like every it, it's just uh everybody was in a band and broke up and started another band and if you go through and actually read about 
who was in what and where. It's like a, an extended family almost. So. Right. Like the Yardbirds had Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck in it. Yeah. So Bonham <laughs> met Plant originally with, again, a, the band called King Snakes. Plant was later playing with the group Band of Joy, and he picked up Bonham as the drummer, and they played through 1968 together. Bottom was playing with Tim Rose the time, and at Plant's recommendation, Paige, Dreja, and Grant saw them play in London. Uh, according to Paige, said, when I saw what a thrasher Bonzo was, I knew he'd be incredible. He was into exactly the same sort of stuff I was. So Paige invited Bottom to his boathouse to meet the other members, and after a jam session, Paige sent him a telegram and uh, asked him to join the band. Funny, funny note on the telegram. The telegram was actually sent to a local pub that Bonham liked <laughs> to frequent. <laughs> and that's the one that he responded to. And given his like kind of hoppy nature, he, he, it took him a while to respond. It took him a few days to actually respond to the telegram because he thought the offer was too good to be true. Huh. But he, he said yes, and then he was in the band. So let's also talk about Peter Grant, who was also an integral part of the band, the manager. At 6'5", 300 pounds, Grant was a large man that could command the room. People considered him the physical embodiment of Led Zeppelin. He, obviously, he started out as a bouncer, and you can probably see why, and eventually became a semi-professional wrestler named Count Bruno Alasio of Milan, and this led to some acting gigs as well. It sounds like he's like the Suge Knight I, of, that's the perfect of, example. I kind of what it, yeah. Of, he, of hard rock. <laughs> he's the OG Suge Knight. <laughs> yes. Uh, he became a tour manager in 1963 and by 1964 was managing his own acts. In 66, he was asked to manage the Yardbirds, whose popularity was beginning to wane. By 68, everyone was gone but Page, leaving Grant and Page as the successors to the Yardbirds title. They both pretty much saw an opportunity for something more. And... Basically, the name Led Zeppelin was entrusted to him that he would operate under a gentleman's agreement. And uh, all that being said, it basically means that the band trusted the guy so much that they didn't need a written contract and they assumed he was not going to screw them over and was acting in, his best, acting in their best interests, which is hard to find. I think you could talk to most bands, like having a manager that, doesn't care about the money and really cares about the success of the group is a, uh, is a hard thing to come by. And so um, Grant was the, 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 the force behind the negotiations with Atlantic records, which gave him a five-year contract. Uh, and he petitioned for basically complete and creative control of their image. Uh, and that's something that Grant himself rigidly protected throughout the, the tenure of the band. And he's also accredited with changing the instructor structure for how bands are paid for concerts, which people don't, I don't think we realize this. Nowadays, most bands and most artists get most of their income from concert sales, concert tickets. But prior to Led Zeppelin, a band would get like 10% of the ticket sales from a show where the concert promoter and the revenue would get the other 90%. And Grant came in and said, screw that. I want 90% of the revenue. And the 10% can go to everybody else. And so Led Zeppelin was earning 90, whatever somebody bought a ticket, they were getting 90% of the, the value of that ticket, which not only altered their, their, their vast fortunes and made them rich and allowed them to get an airplane, but basically every artist after that 
changed their game up and rewrite their contracts. And uh, it really altered the, the idea of, of touring for the music industry in general. Definitely. The Starship was the name of the airplane. Um, th so he was also notorious for protecting Zeppelin's interests. He would personally go after bootleggers from shows and would go around a venue to catch people selling bootleg copies. And you can actually see this in The Song Remains the Same. And he also had the idea of, of to promote quality. He insisted that the band travel with their own equipment and sound engineers rather than rely on old and outdated venues for sound. And he also, <clears throat> he was also solely focused on the business side. He never had, for other managers, kind of had like kind of influence and creative. And they were quoted to say like, whenever we asked Peter what he thought of a song, he would just say, yeah, it sounds great. Because he was not inter he was he was interested in protecting the band and letting the band do their thing, and then he was going to go do his. So I think the point where the Suge Knight comparison it pretty much ends post X bouncer, very large man. After that, it sounds like he's nothing like Suge Knight, <laughs> where he really has the band's best interest, like really does some pretty amazing things, pretty much revolutionized the concept of touring and how profitable it is now for artists. So, I, yes, I, I kind of want to see a celebrity death match claymation fight between Peter Grant and Suge Knight. Suge Knight. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that would be a pretty great battle. But so as far as integrity, Peter Grant wins. Sorry, Suge Knight. So at this point, <laughs> Led Zeppelin is officially formed. And their first rehearsal was in a basement room on Gerard Street on August 12th, 1968. They played the song, Train Kept Rolling, and there was instant chemistry between the four musicians. And after the session, they started rehearsing at Paige's house and came up with a set for some Yardbirds tour dates that were still on the books. Uh, so their first show was at the uh, Glad Sachs Teen Club. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it, as it's in Denmark. Yeah. And I'm, I've never been to Denmark. And uh, this was on September 8th, 1968. And they premiered actually as the new Yardbirds, as they were not the old band and they wanted to differentiate themselves as they were, they were still under contract. So they had to keep some part of it. Uh, the show was part of a two week, 14 show tour across Denmark, Sweden and Norway. And despite only playing a handful of shows under the new York, new Yardbirds name, they got that uh, handshake deal with Atlantic for, for five years. And again, was given complete creative control over their, their imagery of the band, the tour materials, where they went, the, the use of singles or the, the, the lack, lack of, of singles, singles, for that matter, <laughs> as most bands were focused on. You always had three or four singles put out and Zeppelin only had one, one in album, maybe, like maybe one for the first one. A whole lot of love was released on a single and the band didn't like it because in order to play on the radio, they had to cut the songs down to like three and a half minutes. And so the single for Whole Lot of Love was, you know, two minutes shorter than the studio version. They started recording the first album on September 27, 1968 at Olympic Studios in London. The sessions lasted nine days, but Paige said we recorded the whole first album in a matter of 30 hours. That's the truth. I know because I paid the bill. Can you imagine recording an entire album in 30 hours? That's insane, especially like how quality it was. I, I just can't. And, I, and, I, and one of the reasons why they were able to record it relatively quickly, because it was like what they recorded was pretty much the set that they were playing 
the previous two weeks when they were completing that tour for the Yardbird, for the, for the new, as the new Yardbird. So they, they kind of worked out a lot of the kinks and then they just went in the studio and did it. And it, it's also a testament again to their, the insane talent that they all had where I mean, you've gotten between Paige and Jones being studio musicians and, and you know, arrangers like, you know, writing and producing a song for these guys was second nature. I mean, they had been professional they're 24, 25 years old and had been professional for eight years, which I try to think when I was 17, 18, the idea of being a professional musician. No, I, as a, as a junior in high school, right? Yeah, <laughs> like they knew what they wanted to do and they did it and they were super successful at it. And that's, uh, that's how it works. So they completed the album. This is their first album before officially signing the deal with Atlantic. They wanted to have it in the can before they signed the deal. And then their first shows were at the Great Hall at Surrey University in Battersea, which is a, a, a very long title for a place, on October 25th, 1968, and then at the Bristol Boxing Club on the 26th. So I did some, I, 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 was, I saw some conflicting things, so I put both those in there because like, one person said, one place I looked said the Bristol Boxing Club was the first one, and then another place I said, said the Great Hall at you know, that university was the first one. So I just, there's some, apparently some dispute on the first show that actually had as Led Zeppelin, like Led Zeppelin was on the bill and they were Led Zeppelin. So speaking of Led Zeppelin, where did the name come from? Some people know the story. Uh, some people don't. In May, 1966, Keith Moon, who was the drummer for the who recorded on Bex Bolero, a song that we mentioned previously with, with Paige, John Paul Jones, and Jeff Beck. The track came out well, and they tossed around the idea of forming a new band. Moon allegedly said the band would go over like a lead balloon. Paige remembered the joke two years later when he created Led Zeppelin. The story was, this story was actually contested by John Entwistle, who was the, the bassist for The Who, who claimed that he came up with a name for a potential solo band, had shared it with Richard Cole, who would turn out to be Zeppelin's road manager, and Paige stole the idea. Another story says that in 1968, Paige used to wear a small replica Zeppelin on his clothes that was made of lead. And as written by Keith Shadwick in his book, Led Zeppelin, colon, the story of the band and their music, he says, quote, perhaps contemplating the clever, heavy and light contradictions contained in Iron Butterfly's name, Page found what he was looking for pinned to his own shirt. Perhaps it was a combination of circumstances, a timely coincidence, end quote. And Grant, basically, it's, it's rumored that he just dropped the A in the word lead so that it wouldn't confuse Americans, which sounds, <laughs> sounds, about, sounds about right. <laughs> I appreciate that they did that because lead Zeppelin just doesn't quite have the same ring. Yeah, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't. <clears throat> All right, uh, moving on to the, the second most, I guess, popular part of the band would be their, the four symbols that John obviously got a tattoo of. They're, they're, they're fairly significant representations of the group and each member. Uh, so Robert Plant's is, if you've seen it, it's a feather in a circle. Now, as Plant was choosing, um, you know, feathers are sacred symbols in many ancient religions. Plant was really big into mythology. It's also said to symbolize the writer, which again, Plant was, was, was coming into his own as a composer of, of lyrics for the song. And then he later claimed that it's a symbol that is representative of the mythological Mu civilization. 
that existed over 14,000 years ago and has connections to Easter Island and Atlantis. So Paige chose uh, Zoso, and which, of which very little is known of it. Blank claimed Paige told him once, but he since forgot. What is known is that it isn't supposed to be an actual word, but more of an alchemy symbol. An, al an alchemy symbol. It's apparently from a book known as the Red Dragon or Grand Grimoire, an occult book published in the 16th century, which for Page would make sense, that Page picked up through his interest in Aleister Crowley, who we will touch on later. The symbol stands for Saturn, which is the ruling planet of Capricorn, Page's birth sign. So it's, it's not an actual word. But everybody says Zoso. Hmm. Interesting. Bonham... His symbol is are three interconnected circles, and Bonham and John Paul Jones didn't take the symbols quite as seriously. They actually picked them from an Aleister Crowley book of symbols rather than designing their own. Page claims they represent the man, woman, child. They also later discovered it's the symbol for Ballantine beer. <laughs> Which is probably more likely is why he chose it. <laughs> I'm looking at I'm looking at the logo right now and it's Ballantine is an American it's an American, I think it's, what is it, Pittsburgh or something? Or Philadelphia? I don't know. It, New Jersey. It's, it's, a, it's a coincidence, but it's still very fitting that... Uh, it's a beer company. The biggest drinker would choose a, a symbol for a beer company. Yeah, and then uh, John Paul Jones, <laughs> is, he has three very kind of sharp pointy ovals with an interlocking circle. They are said to represent leader, the leadership position in a religious cult known as uh, Rosicrucians. And... Uh, According to Jones, though, he just liked the way it looked, and he went with it, and he also enjoyed it because it was a difficult symbol to actually draw accurately. So, they, they, uh, Jones and, and Bonham, though, it, it was more of a, I think, just stick your finger in a book type thing. Like, okay, go with that. It, there wasn't a lot of thought, deep thoughts, deeper meaning into their symbols. So, and, and, and as they say, the rest, was rock and roll history. If we wanted to touch on everything, this podcast would last all night. So, but on September 25th, 1980, everything changed. So on a day, the day earlier, September 24th, John Bonham started his morning, like all of us start their morning, with four quadruple vodkas and a ham roll. He proceeded to, to consume the equivalent of 40 shots of vodka throughout the day. Uh. He eventually passed out on the couch, was moved to his bed by an assistant who had, according to the assistant, laid him on his side with pillows on his back for support. But the next morning, John Paul Jones and another man uh, went to the room and they found him basically had asphyxiated on his own vomit. And John Jones had to go break the news to Page and Plant and everybody else. His funeral took place on October 10th, 1980. On December 4th, 1980, their record label, Swan Song Records, issued a statement that read, quote, We wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were, end quote. End Led Zeppelin. And, and, that, was, and that was that. But... There were a few moments of them reuniting. So the first time this happened was July 13th, 1985. Page, Plant, and Jones reunited for Live Aid, the concert in JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. Uh, the short set 
uh, featured drummers uh, Tony Thompson and Phil Collins, as well as bassist Paul Martinez. Um, they reunited again May 14th, 1988, for the 40th anniversary of Atlantic Records, uh, this time with Jason Bonham playing, for the, playing the drums, which I think was really cool that they got him to do that, because you can see Bonham as Jason as a kid, and song remains the same twirling his drumsticks as like a four or five year old on his little miniature drum set. So it was uh, as close to the real thing as you're going to get. And then um, that after 1988, everybody kind of went their own way. John Paul Jones stayed busy doing solo work and arranging. Uh, he worked with over a 10 year period, 15 years. He worked with Paul McCartney, Brian Eno, REM, the Buffalo Surfers, Ben E. King, the Foo Fighters and Sonic Youth, just to name a few. Uh, he personally arranged and composed all the tracks for the Symphonic Led Zeppelin album, which is a really cool album that's worth checking out if you have not yeah. heard it or heard of it. Definitely. And in, in 2009 and 10, he was part of a, another super group with Dave Grohl and uh, the Queens of the Stone Age frontman Josh Hom, and they were called Them Crooked Vultures. So John Paul Jones has definitely stayed, stayed busy. A lot of them stayed busy, yep. Yeah, in 94, Page and Plant performed the 90-minute set Unleaded for the MTV Unplugged series. This led to the release of No Quarter, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant Unleaded. Another good thing that the E or the A is not in there would have really confused everybody. <laughs> Unleaded. Unleaded. The album prompted a world tour the following year, but funny enough, Jones was never told of the reunion. <laughs> And speaking of that, in 19, the next year, in 1995, Led Zeppelin were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith. When accepting the award, Jones said, quote, thank you, my friends, for finally remembering my phone number. Uh, the first set featured, again, Jason Bonham on drums once, and then also Tyler and Perry, and they played a second set that had Michael Lee on drums, but also featured Neil Young. <clears throat> Page and Plant reunited again for an album, Walking into Clarksdale, in 1998, and the subsequent tour followed that. Uh, to, to, to segue back I, the, to the Jones thing, I, I think it's really interesting that they didn't. It's, it's something to discuss. I don't know if you guys want to, but like, why would they not contact the basis of the band for a, a get-together show? But I, I think part of it goes to John Paul Jones was – I don't want to say the odd man out of the group, but he definitely kept to himself. When you, when you read the, the documentation in the books, you know, the Jimmy Page, Robert Plant and Bonham were, were bigger into drinking and drugs. And while John Paul Jones definitely has his moments from what I would read when they went to, to tours in various cities, he knew people. And when he had the opportunity to, he'd go stay at a friend's house versus staying at the hotels. So he always kind of had a little bit of distance from the group. To the point, like I was saying earlier, in 73, he was the one thinking of quitting first because they were touring so much and he was missing his family. And at one point, he said he would have given up Led Zeppelin and become the organist at a, a local cathedral near where he grew up just because he could do it and he wouldn't have to worry about the, the stresses of being a, a member of such a famous group. But I, I, do you guys have any, any, any theories may, or ideas I, for that? I think that makes sense. I also think that, I mean, who knows what the, what, I mean, psychologically, I know they had kind of formed, they've gotten back together before that, but you got to wonder, 
you know, there's, I'm sure there's some type of piece to it to where if, if there's three members and you're missing the fourth, even if you're playing with his son, it's, maybe it just doesn't seem the same. Like, it's just like almost like a let's avoid that possible, you know, sadness, maybe. Or, or the, know, maybe. the public connection. Which people think, oh, this is Led Zeppelin when it was not quite Led Zeppelin. It was a, a page and plant endeavor. And that's kind of why they could call themselves unleaded as opposed to, well, now Led Zeppelin's just back doing, you know, un, you know, acoustic um, un, un, unplug series, right? Right. So I, I just thought that was a little interesting thing to talk about because it's uh, <laughs> to go to your acceptance of the Rock Hall of Fame and to quip, you know, thanks for remembering to, to call me to show up was a, a, a funny little bit of English humor right there. Um, so moving on to, to continue, though, on uh, December 2007, they reunited at the, the O2 Arena in London for a concert in honor of Abed, excuse me, Ahmed Ertegun, the late founder of Atlantic Records. Uh, Jason Bonham once again sat in on the drums. According to the Guinness World Book of World Records, the show set a record for the highest demand for tickets for one music concert as 20 million requests were submitted online. And it immediately followed... Um, that a lot of rumors started that Zeppelin was getting back together for a tour, but nothing ever materialized as uh, Plant was busy with other projects, including a, another tour with Alison Krauss. And he was, and the other three members were okay with starting to do it. Like Paige and Jones and Bonham were like, yeah, let's, let's come up with new stuff and let's, let's go. Like they were going to, like Paige was ready to jump in the recording studio and start recording new stuff. But Plant was like, no, I'm, I'm busy. I'll, I'll get to you guys when I can, and then nothing ever happened. Side note, I was one of those 20 million people that requested <laughs> online. I did not get to go, unfortunately. Um, and then another another tidbit about this show was that this is the only show. They wanted to choose one song that they had never performed live before, so they actually they performed For Your Life, which is the only time. They never performed that live as Led Zeppelin. It's the only time they ever performed it was at this show. They just wanted to do something special with Jason. So we, we kind of, we did kind of jump past a lot of like their playing days. We went from them being formed to them breaking up. So we should at least spend a little bit of time talking about a few crazy stories that involves uh, various members of Led Zeppelin. So the one I'm going to talk about first has to do with the podcast I listened to on Disgraceland and it deals with, who we've heard earlier in this podcast as well, Alistair Crowley. Paige got really into this guy. And if you don't know who Alistair Crowley is, he was an English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. So you can imagine he's got a very unique take on, on life. And uh, he, he claimed that the purpose in life had been to bring oriental wisdom to Europe and to restore paganism in a pure form. Yes. So, okay. So it gets, it gets weirder. Another big thing about Crowley was sexuality was a big thing. He outlined three forms of sex magic, the autoerotic, homosexual, and heterosexual, and argued that such acts could be used to focus the magician's will onto a specific goal, such as financial gain or personal creative success. I mean, wouldn't that be nice that, that those things lead to these things? Page did, in fact, purchase Crowley's former home in Loch Ness, Scotland in 1971. And so here's here are a couple stories. Number one, he apparently one night while tripping heard an actual black dog and saw a black dog and kind of lost his mind. 
And then Bowie comes in town and is basically talking to Paige about that as well as about Crawley. But Bowie was so freaked out by their encounter that he actually had his house, his own house exercise and avoided Paige as much as he could afterward after that. So he just got totally freaked out by Paige and his Crowley beliefs and his mysticism and magic. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I definitely listened to that episode because it is interesting. And I I remember Jordan and I talking about it once, and she was like, "Yeah, he's he's a devil worshiper. Like he's he." <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I would go that far. But it's it, there's definitely some interesting things going on there. Well, they they definitely took the whole sex aspect to uh to a whole new levels because they were the band was notorious for the uh their antics and their escapades and just well, the, he, he, uh, he according to page he just thought he was doing like his religious duty and that led to their success i don't know if we could say causation or correlation here or maybe just coincidence but yeah there, yep. there's the he was house. he was he was doing it and he was seeing the effect so he just kept he just kept going. Hey, hey this like, is working. Hey, this, something's working. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Let's keep right. going. So sp- speaking of some of the uh, the escapades, um, this is actually one that's also mentioned on Disgraceland. They don't do, go into a lot of detail on it. and uh, It is one that some people have probably heard of that have listened to this podcast. Most of you may have not. And it's, it's the Mud Shark incident. Uh, so allegedly... After playing a show at the Seattle Pop Festival in July on July 27, 1969, the band and their guests went back to their room at the Edgewater Inn. The Edgewater Inn is famous for sitting atop the Puget Sound, and guests can actually fish from their windows. Allegedly, again, someone reeled in a mud shark, though other versions of this story have the fish being either a swordfish or a red snapper. And according to Stephen Davis's book, Hammer of the Gods, it was Richard Cole and John Bonham that actually caught the shark. Eventually, at one point in time, a groupie was tied down, and then they, yeah, with the shark, you, you know, I'm not going to really go into details about that. Um, other versions of the story don't have Zeppelin involved in that at all. They have Zeppelin in the hotel while it happened, but they attribute the act to the band Vanilla Fudge, while the lead singer, Mark Stein, filled it on a Super 8 camera. Frank Zappa's live album, Fillmore East, actually has a track entitled The Mud Shark, which describes Vanilla Fudge as the culprits. Richard Cole, the, the, band, the tour manager, denied the incident in his 2002 book, Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin Uncovered. However, according to Carmine Apice, the, the drummer for, for Vanilla Fudge, it was Cole and Vanilla Fudge manager Bruce Wayne, who actually performed the act on the groupie. Either way, it's kind of gross. Whether it did happen, whether it didn't happen, you have people denying it. You have people saying it was another band. Was it Zeppelin? Was it not? You guys can read up on it and you know figure it out for your own self. We could say, what's age the worst? An incident like that and the, and the, the way groupies were treated back back then by (laughs) jimmy Jimmy page locked a 16 year old in his house or apartment for several days to i don't remember the amount of time but but by today's standards the band would not have survived a a single tour no 
No. Well, they, social, well, they, social media would have destroyed this band. I was going to say they would may have survived, but they would be in jail. There's, there's a different difference between the two. Yeah. Well, speaking of jail, uh, let's go on to in the Oakland in Oakland at the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, the band was set to play two nights in July of '77. Uh, Peter Grant had hired a giant, a man named John Benden to be security at the show. And at the start of the show, Benden had allegedly shoved one of concert promoter Bill Graham's stage crew. Now, Bill Graham ran the Fillmore and was famous for his, if you've ever seen the psychedelic posters from 60s stuff, it's all kind of Bill Graham, Bill Graham presents. Um, this led to an altercation between Benden where he knocked the security or the, uh, the promoter out. Now, simultaneously backstage, uh, or a few minutes later, one of Bill Graham's crew, Jim Matzorkas, struck Peter Grant's 11-year-old son over the removal of a dressing room sign, which I, I, it, to me is kind of like being in the wild and hitting a, a baby bear cub with the mama nearby. Uh, backstage, Grant Benden and potentially John Bonham took Mazorkas aside. I think he took him into a trailer and beat him to the point of hospitalization. Um, Graham was not going to press charges at first, and then after their second show, he recanted and decided to press charges against the group. So the morning after their second show, the band was raided by the police at their hotel, with uh, Grant, Richard Cole, Benden, and Bonham were all arrested, um, and then they, they all posted bail and immediately headed to, uh, to New Orleans to stay for their, their show there, but immediately after that whole tour was interrupted when uh, Robert Plant's son died. So it kind of but they, nobody was charged with anything. It was all swept under the rug. But uh, these were some, you know, blue-collar English kids who liked to drink. And from, from what everything I read about Bonham, was, he wasn't a guy that would look for a fight. But if a fight presented itself, he was not afraid to, uh, to have a scrap. So they, there was definitely more than one incident of the group beating the, the shit out of themselves or somebody else. <laughs> and then um <clears throat> another incident involves televisions and oddly enough also occurs at seattle's edgewater inn eight years after the we'll say we'll say the mud shark incident uh where the band threw five television sets into the puget sound uh, also allegedly they had they for the mud shark thing they received like a lifetime ban so somehow they got around that stayed at the hotel again and then they did all this uh james blum who was the hotel manager at the time was was furious and charged the band twenty five hundred dollars five hundred dollars a piece for for each television which tour manager richard cole paid with no problem as he was checking out cole was apparently asked by a young hotel clerk i've heard that led zeppelin has a reputation for throwing TVs, but I thought it was just BS. Can you tell me, what does it feel like to toss a TV out your window? Cole replied, quote, kid, there are some things in life you've got to experience for yourself. And as he slid the clerk $500, he said, here you go, mate. Go toss a TV, curse you, Led Zeppelin. I mean, there's so, all of these stories. There's so many of them that are, are just... That's such a, uh, such a rock star thing to do. It's so rock that star. Even, that, was, that was the manager. <laughs> right that was the manager and, and you know and that was all that was depicted in almost famous and so was this next story and by the way we're referencing almost famous and if you don't know what that is please just google it really quickly 
It's Cameron Crowe. It's basically a, it's a guy who was a very young um, reporter, based for the most part, he, author. He was, a, he was the youngest journalist for the Rolling Stones. And, and he went around and toured with some pretty amazing popular rock star bands in the, in the 70s and 60s and then wrote about it for Rolling Stone. And the movie is basically him following one band and then, but all the stories of all these different bands are kind of intermixed into one film. Anyway, definitely worth watching because here's another one that kind of appears <laughs> called this Motorcycle Rides. Bonham rode his motorcycle through a lobby of the Chateau Marmont on Sunset in LA. He also did it again at the Continental Hyatt House, which is called the Riot House and the Andes West Hollywood Hotel. So he just really loved cruising through hotel lobbies in motorcycles. Norm, that's a normal yeah. thing. You, you guys probably he was see a big, it. He was a big car guy, too. Yeah. And then there was also the, um, the whipped cream. Um, apparently, Paige and Bonham were bored one night at a hotel when an idea came to them, and Paige was kind of in the mood, and he was trying to figure out, like, hey, how am I going to, you know, and allegedly Paige stripped completely naked and laid down on a room service cart. Bonham then covered him in whipped cream and wheeled him into a room of young women and then closed the door. Hmm. And that's how he was presented to this group full of the, this group of women at this hotel room. And then, well, yeah, you can probably imagine what happened next. Uh, moving on the land of the rising sun. So the, the group decided kind of early on to, to spread their wings, so to speak, and do some international tours, one of which was uh, Japan in 1971 of September. So um, they were going to basically play six shows over a week, and the entire time was kind of a crazy experience. So before the first concert, Bonham punched Robert Plant in the face over a 30-pound petrol bill that Bonham had paid and wanted some reimbursement for. So Plant ended up performing the first night with a split lip. Later on, while drunk at a club, John Bonham pissed on a DJ who was performing in a cage. He was then left passed out drunk on the curb outside the hotel where he slept for the night. Uh, the next night, Richard Cole and John Bonham purchased swords and proceeded to slice their hotel room at the Tokyo Hilton into pieces. And then they broke into John Paul Jones's room, pulled him out of his bed. He was passed out and they let him sleep in the hallway on the floor. And the, the Japanese, uh, the hotel people were too polite to wake him up. So they just put some screens up around him rather than disturbing him. And then the next morning they went to check out and they were asked not to return to the Tokyo Hilton. And then they were taking an overnight train to their next show. I think it might've been Kyoto or Osaka. Jimmy Page had brought with him a, a young Japanese woman. And at one point during the train ride, John Bonham stole the woman's purse, took it into the bathroom with him and took a dump in the purse as a joke. The woman later found it and was totally mortified. Jimmy Page went ballistic and was yelling and screaming and throwing punches. Somebody dove into Peter Grant's sleeper bunk, which woke him up, which is like, like poking a bear. So Grant went ballistic and started throwing punches at who was nearby and then fired Richard Cole for not controlling things, even though he wasn't actually fired. And then jokingly, I, this might be true, I'm not sure, but they, the band spent so much on, they, they bought cameras, they went to the nicest restaurants and did a lot of drinking and touring. Apparently it was the only tour where they ended up in the red and lost some money to, uh, to a promoter and they had to pay out of pocket for 
all of the everything they had done while in Japan. Heck of a trip to Japan. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It's one hell of a week. That is one hell of a week. Well, we obviously couldn't, you know, we could keep going on about all these stories that either happened or were alleged. Either way, Zeppelin is a pretty crazy band. And we would be remiss if we didn't spend a little bit of time talking about just their impact and their awards and their legends. So they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as we already mentioned, in 1995, and the UK Music Hall of Fame in 2006. They were also the recipient of a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2005. They have been awarded five Diamond albums, which are 10 million sold, as well as 14 multi-platinum, over 2 million, four platinum, over 1 million, and one gold album, which is 500,000 in the United States. In addition to listing five of their albums in the Rolling Stones list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, Rolling Stone also named Led Zeppelin as the 14th greatest artist of all time in 2004. Uh, In 2005, Page was appointed to be an officer of the Order of the British Empire in recognition of his charity work. And then in 2009, Robert Robert Plant was honored as a commander of the Order of the British Empire for his services to popular music. Can I, can I say something? Do you think that in 1971, when they were crapping in women's purses, do you think they would have been given this recognition by the British Empire some 30 years later? Uh, I think they probably never would have thought that that would have happened. <laughs> right. <the time. laughs> they, they were actively ducking out of the country to avoid paying taxes. So no, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah that's <clears throat> True. Um, the band ranked number one on VH1, VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Hard Rock and Classic Rock and the, on the 50 Best Live Acts of All Time. They were also named the Best Rock Band in a Poll by BBC Radio. They were awarded the Ivor Novello Award for Outstanding Contribution to British Music in 1977, as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 42nd Annual Ivor Novello Award Ceremony Ceremony in 1997. I don't know who that is. I need to look him up. Yeah, and they, you know, each one of them has gotten some recognition as well. Obviously very fitting. In 2016, Rolling Stone ranked Bonham number one in its list of the 100 Greatest Drummers of All Time. Stylist Magazine rated Bonham as the number one greatest rock drummers in their list of 50 greatest rock drummers in 2007. Gigwise placed Bonham as the greatest drummer of all time in 2008. And Rhythm Magazine's reader poll voted Bonham as number one in their 50 greatest drummers of all time in 2009. It's a clean sweep. Uh, Rolling Stone ranks Jimmy Page number three in their list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time behind Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. Gibson ranked him number two in their list of the top 50 guitarists of all time in 2010. And in 2007, he was number four on Classic Rock's 100 Wildest Guitar Heroes list. Who's, abo- uh, who's above him? <laughs> like, who would be above him in, in, in Wildest Guitar Hero? I don't know, man. Uh, above Someone's... Page? Yeah. Uh, Jimi got... Hendrix okay. is always one. People like to put Clapton above him sometimes, yep. but uh, I, I personally don't. I'd have to see the list, but that's um, just who who spitballing. I would Hendrix is usually put at number one, if if not, maybe well, Van maybe Halen this is three. and this is a wildest guitar hero, so maybe it's not necessarily like greatest guitarist, but like who's the craziest? 
that's that's what that's what I was asking. I I I recognize there are better guitarists. I mean, you could obviously debate that, but I'm wondering who's crazier. <laughs> like, who, who does oh, well, uh, If it's 2007, the Jimi Hendrix would be crazier, I think, in many ways. But also, like Eddie Van Halen. When yeah. when you start getting the the 70s and 80s, you know, doing doing tapping and you know classical. But again, Page influenced a lot of that, and I, I think a lot of Page's influence, which which I came to understand, like you know, when he would do a guitar solo for a song, you know, they do multiple takes. And so you record multiple different sections of a solo. And then for the actual album, they'd compile a composite of, you know, they'd pull from one track, uh, the, the intro, and then from another track, and that would create the, the guitar solo that you heard. And then the problem was then when you had the concert, you'd have to go back and memorize the, the finger work because it wasn't a quote unquote written out piece. It was several pieces composited. And that was a big thing of what Eddie Van Halen would start to do and all the, the more modern guitarists was we have this technology, we can record multiple takes. You take your best work and you combine it into one awesome recorded guitar solo. But then if you're going to do it in concert, you got to go back and memorize the entire thing because it's, it's not an organic structure. But that, that was a, a big part of redefining rock music at the time was the, the techniques that he had learned and sampling his own stuff and the production aspect that they were just so, uh, so on point with hmm. if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, no, it totally makes sense. Uh, but moving on, Rolling Stone readers ranked plant as the greatest lead singer of all time in 2011. And uh, in 2008, the editors ranked him number 15 on their list of 100 best singers of all time. So he's, he's definitely a fan favorite as far as the, the rock and roll singers go. And then uh, a Planet Rock poll in 2009, 2009 had Plant as the, the greatest voice in rock as well. Finally, Jones was ranked third in Guitar Magazine's Bassist of the Millennium, Reader's Poll in 2000, and, and in 2014, Jones ranked number one on Paste Magazine's list of 20 most underrated bass guitarists. So they've they've gotten tons of recognition, accolades, individual as a group. That's probably that's not even all of it. That's just scratching the yeah. surface on the accomplishments and the influence and everything. Well, that's Led Zeppelin, guys. How do we do? That was maybe a record for length of podcasts for sure. But quite frankly, we it's a lot of knowledge. We didn't even cover as much stuff as we easily could have. We could do an entire series on this and go into depth on a lot of different aspects of the band, but maybe another time. But again, though, they're worth checking out. Like, there's a lot of available documentation about, you know, there's at least three or four different biographies from different people mm-hmm. that all, all give you different glimpses of different time periods from different perspectives. And if it's a, it's a band you like and that's your thing, it's definitely worth it. Uh, a little bit of research definitely well to wrap things up we always got to do a little bit of nerd outreach so we're going to start with our thank yous and i mean we first have to thank our our guest of honor today mr watka thanks mr. for joining Waka. us today thank I'm you just, i'm just glad you guys let me play in your 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 club how do you how do you how do you, th- how do you think you did how did how did you do how would you rank yourself i'm a bit of a talker and i like Led zeppelin so i know i added a bit of extra material than probably what you you're nodding your head yes in agreement i understand that oh that's good i'm, I'm saying that's a good thing i'm, ag- I'm agreeing 
I'm not no, as nervous we, as I thought I'd be. No, normally, I clam up when it's the idea of people hearing. What yeah, I you're, but you're but you're talking about something you're familiar about, well, so that always makes it easier. That that is definitely the difference, and you know, there it's it's one of the few groups uh, aside from Pink Floyd. I mean, Zeppelin and Floyd are my two musical biggest influences. So uh, I've, I've a tattoo of them too. Yeah, there you right. go. <laughs> a big Roger hey, Waters but, face. I, I, I have to say. Thank you for inviting me, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. You know, for eighties and movies and what what have you. We've got Definitely. a couple movies. We've got a couple movie ideas for you lined up for sure in the future. So if you'll come back, we'll have you back. Right. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> so future show suggestions. Uh, as always, send them via email to nerdisnucleopodcast at gmail.com, or you can use the hashtag nerdisnucleopodcast on any of the socials. Contact us by liking or following us on Facebook or Instagram at nerdisnucleopodcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at nerdisthenewco2. And you can hear us on all different platforms, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud. Just search for Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. And of course, we have our next episode preview. We are going to be talking TV through the decades. This is our final, our final decade breakdown of the 2010s. The last one. It's I, been I a keep journey. saying this. I say this to Lambert every single time we do one of these decade breakdowns. This well, really, is, since the 90s. The yeah, 90s, each, you said it. <laughs> okay, Waka, let me, well, before we sign off, Waka, what do you think <laughs> is the best decade of television, 90s, 2000s, or 2010s? Putting you on the spot here. Like my own personal or in terms personal. of your own yeah. personal? Personal. Yeah. What would, well, okay, here, and let me phrase well, it. It's hard. I, let me, not, let me not, not, not just pose the question, what's the best? Better what would be the easiest to choose like a few favorite shows from that particular decade? That's a tough one, but I, I might go with the nineties just because it's, I think almost the height of the sitcom where you have the, the peak years of the Simpsons, you have Seinfeld, you have friends. There was a lot on uh, there was a lot of content and product. And it was before the, before the Sopranos came out and before the, the, the cable revolution that really, gave you the dramatic stuff of the 2000s, 2010s, but I don't think that would have happened without, uh, you know, not to say the Simpsons and Seinfeld gave us what we have, but uh, seasons three through eight, three through nine of the Simpsons is some of the best written TV of all time. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's tough. Do, do a Google search of 90s television, 2000 television, 2010s. And I got to tell you, it's getting increasingly harder. So Looking forward to that next episode in a couple weeks. Until then, thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you later. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye.